0: This podcast is one that I have been looking forward to since we began this podcast series. Our guest and an old friend, Andrew Shutter, uh, is a legend in the sovereign debt world. Now, I've known Andrew for years, in part because he was one of the senior lawyers at Cleary Gottlieb during the days. Uh, when Lee Bukait was running sovereign debt restructurings all around the world. And Andrew was one of the few people Lee trusted. And in the context of working with Lee, Andrew uh, got to lead uh, the largest sovereign debt restructuring in history. And he's done lots of other amazing work. But my hope is that today we can uh, talk to him in detail about some of the parts of that story that are not widely known, in part because they involve uh, details that perhaps the many politicians who have written books about this were not interested in. But regardless, uh, welcome, Andrew. Mark and I are so thrilled to have you here.
1: Wow, it's great. it's great to be on your podcast. I'm a, I'm a huge fan, and, and I even love the intro music a lot.
0: <laughs> Thank you. All right, so, Andrew, I, I want to start by setting the stage as I remember it, and as I think Mark remembers it, although Mark will correct me. Uh, my impression, and I was teaching a course uh, during uh, the years building up to the Greek restructuring of March, 2012, I was teaching my sovereign debt class. And I remember telling my students, uh, look, this is all uh, European. Uh, Greece is part of the Eurozone. It's part of the European Union. All of their bonds are under local Greek law. The courts that there will be challenges to are European. So surely all of the restructuring to the extent one occurs will be managed by a big European law firm, and maybe an English law firm, but probably a law firm uh, out of Greece or Germany, one of those. Uh, And the uh, American law firms, given that uh, the U.S. and uh, U.K. law firms, you know, most of their restructuring experience is in the context of emerging market countries, the U.S. primarily uh, in Latin America, they're not really going to be part of this, in part because th- there must be details that they just don't know. The context is different. You have to deal with all the bureaucrats of the ECB, all of that, and yet, <laughs> in the end, you got to do this deal, and you know it, it was such a big, a momentous deal. And in hindsight this is one of the nice things. In hindsight, it is it turned out to be so much more successful than I think any of us could have imagined. Uh, so I'm hoping you can tell us the story of how is it that a US-UK uh, law firm ended up doing this European deal? Sure, well, <laughs>
1: you're, you're, you're quite right when you were speaking to your students that suggesting that it wasn't obvious that a New York law firm would um, would have a, a leading role in this. Um, the, the bulk of the bonds were governed by Greek law, which we'll talk about more. Those who were not governed by Greek law were governed by English law. Um, so, you know, you might say, well, why, why, why the New York law firm uh, getting involved? We, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. This is sort of the actual reasons. But the, the route the root was somewhat circuitous. And for the European institutions, this was... You know, a first um, since the EU had been created, no EU member state had been the subject of a a debt restructuring. And there was um, there was resistance um, in in a big way to the idea of any sort of restructuring, let alone hiring a firm that was particularly known for um, advising borrowers on how borrowers, sovereigns on how best to restructure their debt. You, you mentioned the big English law firms as well, and, and quite rightly so, because the main uh, go-to law firm for Greece, had, for their capital markets issuances, had been um and and Overy, a, a, a leading UK law firm, and, and the relationship was with a fantastic lawyer. We know well, Yannis Manuelides, who's English qualified, and obviously by the name, a Greek national, um, but their their history, unlike some other the other English firms, their history wasn't one that was so closely tied to working with sovereigns, doing debt debt restructuring, um, and and I think that initially suited um, the, the parties in Europe, because as, as you know, the parties in Europe wanted to avoid the R word and any any variation there were thereof. They, they did not want to hear about a restructuring or a reprofiling. Um, and the idea that um, Cleary Gottlieb was hired was gonna send shop ways through the market, which it ultimately did. So we, we had to approach it um, carefully. Um, we were a sounding board for a while as a firm. And then in fact, um, you know, th- this time last year, sorry, this time, not last year, this time 10 years ago, I was, um, on a, trying to do a sailing holiday, but in the Balearics, but had to stay within short range of the airport because we were on standby to try and help and understand what was um, the ill-fated and slightly ill-conceived um, PSI one, the the initial attempt to restructure Greece's debt, which was um, which was being considered in in 2011, and then it was only really when um, as the the European institutions realised that something more than what was considered for PSI one, something more was going to be needed. That um, that there was a there was a lull, there was a, a change of pace from PSI one to what became known as PSI two, which we'll explain. Um, and in and in that lull, it was possible to um, switch switch around the roles and switch who was doing things. And we, we duly turned up to the uh, rather modest offices of the. PDMA, the Public Debt Management Agency, in a little side street in uh, in Athens, um, where we spent a lot of time <laughs> subsequently.
2: So, so Andrew, can while we're kind of setting the scene, can I ask you to talk a little bit about the differences? So, I, I think for a lot of people, the the kind of standard model of a sovereign debt restructuring involves a, an emerging market borrower, where the primary Sort of international institution of note is the IMF, and the sort of primary sort of foreign state of interest is the US, perhaps, and especially the US Treasury. And here you've got an entirely different set of sort of important rich countries, i.e., Germany, for instance, and an entirely different set of inter- international institutions. So, just how, how did that shape? The thinking going in.
1: Well, it's not so much. I don't think it's so much shaped the thinking has sort of changed the dynamic. Um, because, as, as, as you rightly say, norm, normally it's the it's the IMF, and then if if you need if you feel like a sort of uh, a grown up in the room that isn't the 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 sovereign with the difficulty or the or the bondholders, then the U.S. Treasury will come in and play that role. Here, the 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 third, the third limb of the troika, as it became known, was the the EU Commission and and the European Central Bank, and that changed for some of the reasons I've touched on already. The the dynamic significantly because of the initial reluctance to um, to allow any reprofiling or restructuring. But then, on the other hand, it was a a source of new money um that was critical um to a successful transaction they were they were willing to put more money on the table than the imf um and um so it was it was it was different unlike you know in terms of size and dynamic unlike any other restructuring previously but there were some some elephant elements of that that um Made things a little bit slower, um, but ultimately there are elements that made made it possible in a way that might not have been possible if uh, if um, Greece had been an orphan country um, without without being in uh, in in the, in the EU and in the
0: eurozone. So Andrew, um, I want to ask more about stage setting, uh, in part because yeah. the ultimate story is so amazing, but the. The stage setting is a key part of the story too, at least for those of us on the outside like uh, Mark and for me uh, who didn't know the details and still don't of what actually happened. So my understanding is that when you guys stepped in, uh, which would have been sort of mid to late 2011 and Alan and Overy then which Alan Novry initially was on the uh, working for Greece and then they 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 switch over to the creditor side and then you guys right. switch from the creditor side to the debtor side my understanding is at that point your instructions were still look you're going to do a this voluntary deal uh, only those uh, creditors who want to take less money, always a bizarre concept uh, to me, uh, <laughs> will have to take less money. And uh, But you're not going to do any, uh, you know, brutal restructuring of the type that, you know, Cleary is famous for from, you know, deals like Ecuador. Uh, you, you're just going to be gentle and kind and loving to the creditors <laughs> and uh You know, this was, these were the orders. At least this is my outside impression. And then it changes suddenly at some point into, no, not only are we, we no longer believe in kind and gentle, we're still going to call it voluntary, but now it's the full Monty. You know, like now we like want at least a 50% haircut for everybody. And, uh, you know, so I, as Mark said, first, the players are so different. There's the ECB. I mean, I remember going to the ECB at one point with an unnamed friend of ours and I was supposed to present a paper on how Greece might restructure. And then I get I get, get there and they say, well, we're not interested in talking about that. <laughs> and I was like, okay, but that's what I prepared to do. Present and they say, "Well, no, you have to present something else." It's The most horrible uh, presentation I ever gave with an audience wondering why is he talking about this completely bizarre <laughs> stuff that's unrelated to the paper we got, and I'm wondering why am I talking about this completely unrelated, uh, bizarre stuff. But so you had the ECB that was just staunchly against any restructuring ever, and uh, I. My impression is that many of the European governments were really worried about spillover effects, that you know European governments would no longer be able to you know, run the tap on sovereign borrowing. And then, then they turned around and said 50% haircut. And then, then the relevance of hiring you guys became very obvious. So for everybody who suspected, look, if you hire Lee and Andrew and Andres de la Cruz, a restructuring is coming. They tell us no 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 we don't mean that we just want them to do nice kind voluntary and then a few months later they change but from an outside observers vantage i think that was the plan all along but i'm guessing inside it must have been like they must have been very different and you probably were wondering what the hell is going on <laughs> well yeah
1: if, if, if it was the plan all along to
0: hire us um because they knew
1: when they hired us that they were going to go for 50%, 53% haircut, then that, that was a very well-kept secret plan. And the, the people in Europe, in, in Brussels are amazing actors because it wasn't, it wasn't obvious to me at least at all. And in fact, um, you know, the first few months were intensely frustrating. I think particularly for Lee, um, as you know, he, as having co-authored the, the your excellent paper in 2010, he could see so clearly what needed to be done, um, but he was um, constantly being told that um, no, as you said, voluntary. It has to be voluntary, and he would say, "You say voluntary, I hear expensive," <laughs> and and that was the reality. The, the 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 attempts to try and get a deal done right up until. The end of 2011, beginning of 2012, were um, was you know not enough, and I think it was only really when the um, there was a, a realization from um, the some of the the other sovereigns in in the EU that, that Greece was going to need a lot more help than was, was being contemplated, that we did start to talk about actually implementing this, this, the, the plan that you and Lee had written about in your, in your paper in 2010. So it, it took a long time to get to that point at the end of 2011, but once that point had been reached, actually things moved incredibly quickly. If you think that we sort of weren't really properly planning um, a... Uh, a restructuring of any significant sort of debt relief until close to the end of 2011, that the fact that we got the whole thing done by March is pretty astonishing.
2: There was also a related transition in thinking about the mechanics of the restructuring, or at least it seemed that way to me. I, I, I am a true outsider to this, so was relying mostly on scuttlebutt and things in the financial press. But my my understanding is that, you know, at the time, the standard sort of market collective action clause is not aggregated series by series voting, maybe with a 75% threshold. And so I, my assumption and what I had thought was likely to happen um, was something like that might be retrofit onto the Greek local law debt stock. And then in the end, we get a very different beast with aggregated features and with um, a voting threshold that was that was substantially lower than that. I wonder what you can tell us about that transition.
1: Yeah, I mean I I haven't gone back to check the actual sort of old drafts but sort of knowing how we would have done the drafting, I can imagine that the that there was a placeholder in the Greek bondholder act draft (laughs) um, that went something like this square bracket, 75 slash 66.6% square bracket that, that probably was in there from the first draft until right before it went off to parliament um, to be approved. Um, Because I think people, people wanted to assess and see how far it could be pushed. Um, There were, there were, I think, good arguments for, for both thresholds. Um, as you know, under Chapter 11 in the US, perfectly res- respectable rule, set of rules for um, reorganizing creditors' um, claims. 66% is, is, is the norm. Similarly, I understand even in, in, in Greek corporate law, two-thirds is the norm. It's true 75% may have been up to that point. More currently, the, the threshold for supermajority and bondholder action clauses but ultimately um within the realm of possibility why would anyone take the risk that we didn't quite make 75 percent
0: so andrew we're coming up on our break and i i want after the break to ask you more about that that choice uh, about what the voting threshold would be the choice about what quorum to use and you know how one if you know you've done so many of these uh restructurings that I think of on the razor's edge of, will a court tell me that I can't do this or not? So I'm curious, I, I'd love to hear so that we can talk to our students about this, uh, how you make these difficult decisions. But I'm I, in the interest of state setting in this first half, one of the parts of this story that relates to that ultimate choice of the voting threshold has to do with Lee not being there. So, you know, having been a junior lawyer at Cleary many, many, many years ago, I mean, even then, 25 years ago, Lee was this legendary restructuring expert. But he gets very sick and has to go into the hospital right at, at the crucial time when many of these decisions have to be made. And my understanding, and I think it's okay for us to talk about this, uh, is that um, he's so sick that he can't really communicate with you and give you guys uh, direction. And so my understanding also is that you were the senior lawyer, you and uh, our friend Andres de la Cruz, you had to run this uh, without Lee. These ultimate, these decisions had to be made by you in consultation with the clients, but I'm guessing, you know, really you, you had to make these decisions. So before we get into the decisions, what was it like to have to, I mean, you were running what was going to be either the biggest and most disastrous sovereign debt restructuring ever in history, or the most successful one. And these decisions that you were making 75 or 66 and two thirds, would potentially take you, you know, either to disaster or success, and you you couldn't talk to Lee. Was that stressful, or <laughs> you were just used sure. to it? No, no, it was scary. It was scary. I mean, we had it, it was fabulous
1: that Andres could be over from Buenos Aires to to help out because um, you know you you were very generous um, in in your introduction, but um, Andres had much more experience probably than I did at the, at the time of exchange offers themselves. Um, I'd I'd worked on Poland's Brady deal in 1993 and joined Cleary partly mainly to to see if I could carry Lee's bags, which I started to do in 1997 with the end of the Russian Federation Brady deal. But, you know, it was it was scary having had um, him to look up to and and turn to um, throughout all our experiences until then. You know, it was an opportunity to see if we could do it. And and if needs must, I guess you just you just carry on. I mean, we had we had the benefit of your your excellent paper. That was a pretty good instruction manual. And, and, you know, I bet there were some things that um, if Lee were there, he would have done differently, certainly more simply and elegantly. But he's way too gracious to ever point those point, point those improvements out to us.
0: So I think we'll go to a break now. And in the second half, I'm hoping we can ask Andrew about all of those decisions at the end that turned out to really be so crucial and in hindsight, uh, brilliant, I think, uh, that that he and Andres de la Cruz uh, took at those crucial moments. I'm sure that he will say that uh, other people were involved too, but... um, This is a part of history that I'm so excited to
2: Andrew, Mitu had alluded to the choice of restructuring technique, and in particular, the choice of of the voting thresholds and quorums and quorum requirements and so forth. And I think we do want to hear even um, Maybe a, a sort of simplistic overview of how those choices are made, but then a sense of the actual dynamic, to the extent you can give it to us. So, so my sense is that the the ultimate, um, the Greek bondholders act uh, in choosing both a relatively low voting threshold and a relatively low quorum, that that all happened kind of late in the day. And so again, from my outsider's perch, I'm sort of imagining backroom drama where, you know, it's discovered that there's some creditor with a larger position, a blocking position that you didn't know was out there. Um, when in reality, I, I have no idea if, if that's the real story or, um, if if it's something much more nuanced or maybe more interesting than that. So anyway, can you can you just tell us how choices about things like that are made, and then give us a little of the background as to how the shift happened in the Greek restructuring?
1: Sure, sure. I mean, yeah. we, there are, there are two maybe two main observations. Sort of one is that you know obviously although the these CAC thresholds collective action clause thresholds are absolutely fascinating to to you um me too and me and 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 others <laughs> listening to the podcast the, they they were not top of mind for the people who were negotiating the terms um and perhaps not even sort of within their realms of consciousness um so the rules came down from the heads of government and state the Sort of the the, re, the restructuring must deliver this much of psi debt relief and so we really had to solve to achieve that because if if um if the 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 demands of the troika were not satisfied the demands of the 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 commission then it was the transaction was not going to fail and and grexit would have been the result and it would all it was all too too scary to imagine um so you know on the one hand you know I'd i'd love to say there was masses of um consideration up to the highest level as to how we set the thresholds but ultimately it was really more that we had to decide what what might work and what would be the the least vulnerable, and we were pretty comfortable with a, a number of of features. One, obviously, the fact that the the retrofit Greek law um, was going to apply only to um, Greek. Law governed bonds and and any any proceedings that might be brought against those uh, Greek law governed bonds would be typically in in Greece or pursuant to arbitration or some other process that would have um, kicked off long after the debt exchange had completed. That gave us some some cause for concern. Um, we we so it's some cause, cause for comfort. Um, we had um, also um, some comfort slightly from the fact that it, it seemed that there was a divergence in pricing between the English law government bonds and the Greek law government bonds and those it seemed as though the smart money was moving into the English law government bonds to try and hold out and get blocking positions in the English law government bonds which were going to be restructured by series by series CACs which they did and the smart money smart money who who also tends to be the smart money who pay lawyers to litigate were moving out of the greek law bonds which personally gave me a little bit of um a little bit of comfort and and we were also we we're also careful and thoughtful about which greek law um bonds were included in in, in the remit um, there are a couple of anecdotes from sort of the room where it happened um which may, may be worth sharing one One was that um, (laughs) at one point, um, as as you know, politicians everywhere are quite mindful of votes. um, And uh, we got a suggestion from some politicians that perhaps a bond unusually um, heavily invested in by retail, aka voters, one of the Greek law bonds, perhaps that bond might be excluded from the debt exchange. Um, And I was very impressed by... The, the speed with which the, um, the, the Greek team in the room deciding what went in or out of the, the, the bondholder act rejected that idea. but also in terms of what were guaranteed and non- guaranteed bonds there was there was some, some a lot of thought went into what would be included in the remit of the bondholder act based around you know, whether there was value. In the claim against the issuer who had been guaranteed by the stake, if that if that issuer would have, if that issuer claim would have been lost on the exchange, so there was there was a, a, a good deal of thought, um, and um, and but ultimately, um, to to use another of Lee's phrase, you know, for want of better and fear of worse, we had to choose something and and, and go with it, um, and the 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 troika kept a very tight leash. Um, with their ninety percent acceptance condition, and, and held on to the very end to the decision as to whether or not the the collective action clause, the retrofit clause, would ever actually be enacted. Which ultimately they 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 allowed to go ahead when they saw the results of the uh, of the tender.
0: So Andrew, uh, just to um, get more detail on this, uh, and also. Part of it is the background and the format in which Mark and I talk to our students in our sovereign debt international finance class when we're teaching them how one might think about what restructuring strategy to propose to one's client. And, uh, you know, the way we think of it is, look, uh, you don't want to, try to do the restructuring, have it be challenged, and then have a court issue an injunction saying that you can't do the restructuring because it's expropriatory or because it violates the terms of the deal, the terms of your contract, violates some kind of good faith duty. So my sense was that using 75% bond by bond, was, was tricky because you were retrofitting a provision into a contract that wasn't there already. But maybe you could do a little song and dance in front of the judge and say, look, judge, uh, they, you know, this is just what everybody else uses, even though if you look at the local law world, it was not. Nobody was using it. But, but maybe you could do the song and dance and use it and you would get away with it but you guys didn't do that in the end and i'm guessing this was in the last few days you made the decision we're not going to use 75 we're going to use 66 and two-thirds but it's not really 66 and two-thirds you were using 66 and two-thirds as an entire class on this like many hundreds of billions of dollars worth of debt which means in effect, plus if you add the quorum requirement, if I remember correctly, you had a quorum requirement. Uh, right. you really, the voting threshold, some might say was, you know, like half of sixty. It was really like a 30% voting threshold, which if you came before a judge and now you said, oh, judge, we're just retrofitting a collective action clause, which was, you know, the headline was, we're just retrofitting collective action clauses. There I would think you guys were thinking, you know which judge is going to actually believe we retrofit collective action clauses, since this does not look like any collective action clause anybody's ever seen. And uh, I think if a student had proposed that in class, I would say you you're not going to get away with this, like the court is just going to say this is just too much. You're you're going for too much and they're gonna say it's expropriation and you will fail. Yet you succeeded. But in hindsight, it was the right decision. I'm just thinking you must have been so worried. Although you are telling me that wasn't really even the decision calculus. You weren't making these calculations about will this pass legal muster or not? It was just, we have to get 90% threshold. Even if it's ruled exactly. unconstitutional or express. Ultimately,
1: I think I think that's that's the way it was. I mean, we just didn't have time or or much of a choice. I mean, we we obviously thought about it a lot, but it was it wasn't even feasible to have um, an exhaustive sort of examination of all the litigation options. Um you know, we we just didn't have the time and had to go with um, what was would be pragmatically um, within the realms of of um justifiable and what would give the greatest chance of meeting the uh, the, the participation threshold that, that had been set um and, uh, and 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 ultimately that was that was the, the the risk that was taken um there had been there had been some incoming um nasty letters threatening to try and um stop the proceedings and stop the exchange offer and you know that's that's not unusual in a bondholder restructuring bondholders like getting lawyers to write nasty letters and it was a you know a little bit scary but but um ultimately the 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 consequences of it going wrong and having having not um used the aggregation approach um you know would just to 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 extreme.
0: Well, Andrew, let me just follow up. Sorry, cool. Mark, in case you were about to ask a question. One of the the hypotheses that um, I think Mark and I might have even discussed in class is that you guys maybe realized at the last minute that the seventy five percent would not work. You you just didn't have enough votes because. Uh, there were some bonds coming due in March. I think a lot, many billions were coming due in March and creditors, uh, some creditors uh, had had predicted that you would use the 75% threshold and so had 25% uh, blocking positions and you guys outmaneuvered them by changing the threshold at the last minute so they couldn't block you. Is that just a story we're making up or was, was that part of the calculus i mean it seems very cool if you outmaneuvered them at the last second yeah i I, i'd 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 love to claim
1: credit for that type of maneuvering (laughs) um but i i i think the reality as i said before was that the, the 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 smart money went into the english law bonds um we weren't um at least maybe maybe i wasn't but we weren't particularly aware of of specific series that were that were held by a a blocking minority but but obviously we were aware of the the possibility that that were were the case um and and for that for that reason the 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 calculation was taken to 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 go with the aggregation approach and not not risk um losing losing bonds because we hadn't managed to get across the threshold and and remember though that for, for the that the fifty percent was fifty percent across the whole debt stock as, as the as the minimum the the the, the minimum quorum. Uh, compare that with um, many English law style collective action clauses where you can have a quorum as low well as twenty five percent on an adjourned meeting. And so, at least at least for our um, super majority, it had to be. majority of the majority yes maybe maybe that's not the minority but um but at least it was the majority of the majority rather than the majority of a minority of the of holders who would approve
2: You, you had mentioned the smart money going into the english law bonds and i wanted to to ask you a little bit about that so one of the the relatively unique things about the greek case or so it seems to me is that such a small percentage of the debt stock was foreign law that, in my mind, anyway, it allowed a pretty conciliatory approach. It allowed Greece to take a pretty conciliatory approach to the the English law debt. I mean, yes, there were sort of restructuring proposals put forward, and some of them were accepted. But it would have been possible to play. Um, a much more hard-nosed game with the English law bonds, too. And I remember various officials in Europe being, you know, quite adamant in their public statements that holdouts are not gonna get paid. And so I'm wondering why a somewhat harder tack wasn't taken. Um, it seems like it would would have been required if you had a you know a much larger chunk of the debt stock uh, governed by foreign law. but even here it seems um it's an interesting choice so so why not take a harder stance for the english law debt?
1: right no that's a that's a great question and and we we've already talked about the sort of the 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 transition in thinking within the um the the European institutions from no restructuring to um, as you rightly say, some people saying you definitely cannot pay the holdouts, you know, those, those countries who had you know, lent on their own banks and insurance companies to go into the debt offering and take considerable pain, um, really did not want to see the, the, the free riders who were holding out getting paid. Um, you know, it, it was a good thing that there was a, a, a relatively small number of those bonds that could be held out because they were outside of the um the aggregated collection action clause for, for the Greek law carbon bonds. In the end, it was just over six billion, which is you know a, a, a couple of percentage points of the total amount of debt. So you know a, a rounding error. Um yes, six billion is a is a lot of money, but it was a rounding error. And you would we really want to um have a hard default um we did we want to have an Argentina in Europe it just didn't seem for that amount of money and for, given the other types of creditors who had not been included it just didn't seem um, worth the candle we, we did lots of analysis as to the cross acceleration and cross default aspects um, of it we obviously we obviously carved out of the cross acceleration of the new bonds that were issued any of the old bonds to give a clear signal to holdouts so that they could be Defaulted on without the new bonds, the new GGBs having an acceleration right. So we we did the right things to to point people towards the risk of um, of not being paid, um, as as did those politicians and others making the statements that they wouldn't get paid. But um, so hope, hopefully some of that helped reduce the the, the size of the holdouts. Um, but uh, the, the holdouts were nevertheless there, and they were. They were the, the usual suspects, and um, they wouldn't have gone. We'll <laughs> had a fight had uh, had uh, they been defaulted on.
0: Andrew, this is an amazing story, and we've used up too much of your time. But I'm going to ask, just I'm going to combine two of my final questions, and then I promise we'll we'll let you go. But. Thank you for coming to talk to us about this amazing story. I look forward to the book that you write about this and her other adventures. But two, um, two aspects of this deal that I'm guessing you had to make crucial decisions about at the last minute. I mean, it's amazing how much happened in a matter of a couple of months, uh, how many of these crucial decisions you guys had to make. Uh, but two aspects of the restructuring and maybe we the their rounding errors are one uh, the ecb's bonds escape and right as uh, when mark and i were teaching our class on this i think we were trying to count votes and we maybe thought 75% would be used so we got uh, we got snookered too. If we had been holdouts, we, we would have lost. And we would have bought the, the local law bonds, I think, because they were cheaper. So that, I mean, <laughs> you, know, you buy the local law bonds and you buy 25%, then, then you get a cheaper holdout position, but uh, you guys were too clever. Uh, but they, I had always thought that you needed the ECB's holdings to get enough votes. And then once you let them out of the, out of the deal, then now you're operating with private institutions or some public institutions, but really the ECB was, I thought, your crucial voter and they escape scot-free. And the other aspect of this that has always puzzled me was there were a bunch of Greek guaranteed bonds that essentially, as I understand it, like the Greek railroad and there were some defense bonds where like th- those entities never made any money and all of the coupons were being paid by the greek government they get off scot free too it, and i did, why not why not squeeze them as well i mean some decision somewhere was made like this is not okay and then maybe also i remember maybe there was a swiss bond or a japanese bond that gets paid in full it doesn't even go into the restructuring so that's that's I guess three questions wrapped up into one so maybe maybe you'll just give us a quick quick um, quick answer that we should read about it in your book that's coming out uh, hopefully soon (laughs) well I think
1: I think you these have been written about probably already but and except for my opinion on the first question so I'll deal with the second two First, the the, the the Japanese and the Swiss bonds were, you're right, they were anomalies. And um, you know, g- going back to why why New York lawyers were necessary in this deal in the first place is that, irrespective of the governing law, um, the necessarily you know, securities laws impact how you can do an exchange offer, and the 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 the, the legal. Circumstances of the Japanese bond and, and the Swiss bonds were were such that they they couldn't be brought into the broader arrangement. I mean, the attempts were made, um, if I remember correctly, but um, they 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 were not um, they they were not successful in in bringing those bonds into the into the exchange, and that's just a, a feature of having different different varieties of debt. The Greek guaranteed bonds, that I touched on previously, but you know, I I think. That was definitely difficult. Um, there were different forms of those bonds as well, which added to the complication and the, and the point that, you know, had, had this been a sort of transaction where you were extending and giving everybody a, a roughly equivalent MPV haircut based on trading prices or something, you know, maybe something more could have been done to, to factor in the differences between the bonds that were... Guaranteed and had an additional credit claim versus those that were just straight Greek law claims. Um, but that that was that that was a, certainly a, a difficult area and and one that I don't think we ever expected to necessarily get perfectly right. Um, the the ECB much bigger question in terms of quantity of debt that they held and therefore the impact. Um, I know I know, many commentators were sort of up in arms with the idea that the ECB holdings um, should not be included um, in the exchange. Um, and, and as people may know, they were, they were swapped out into different series of um, bespoke um, Greek law governed bonds just before the exchange went ahead so that they could be kept segregated from the that the rest of the Greek law bonds that were the subject of the bondholder act and the exchange offer. I mean, to, to me, that, that always seems sort of self-evident that if, if you're the new money, whether you're doing a corporate restructuring or otherwise, if you're the new money, you get a different treatment, um, to, to those who are not providing the new money, the, the, the bulk of the, the value in the exchange was coming from um, the European institutions of the 30 billion of, of ca- effectively cash was so so important um, so I mean it it, it never w- whether we would have needed them for the voting or not I do not think that was ever on the cards as, a, as an option um, because they would have to, to vote in favor taking the pain I think it would have been it would have been more egregious to have them vote in favour and then not tender in the exchange. Um, that that really would have um, looked um, impolite. Um, but I I, I think um, the, the 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 of all the many different things that will sort of come back from the Greek experience and other experiences, that the relative priority ranking and treatment of different creditors is is one that's always going to be there. And I think it's it's inevitable that there won't always be. Um, the same deal for, for for those who are who are um, passive bondholders versus those who are in institutions who are capable of providing new money and capable of making the exchange happening. Because without without the supporter support financial supporter mentioned at the outset, it's really hard to imagine what sort of exchange or what sort of successful restructuring of Greece could have occurred. Um, and um, you don't bite, bite the hand that feeds you.
2: Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on today. I I have to say, um, you're also the first of our guests to compliment the theme music, which Me Too actually wrote. Uh, Most people don't know that, but he has a a specialty in writing snippets of cheesy elevator music, and that's that's one of his favorites. Um, But more seriously, um, it's been really, really wonderful having you on, and... um, we look forward to to having you come back, I hope. Um, and in my heart of hearts, I want that to be after the Italian debt restructuring, but <laughs> I don't want to be greedy. So one way or the other, um, we look forward to having you back.
1: It was a pleasure and a privilege. I'm really thrilled to have been on. Thank you.